0: Hi everyone, this is Alex Patterson. I'm the Executive Director of Canada 2020 and I want to welcome you all to our live stream picking the Lockdown and the challenges ahead as we ease out of social distancing. We'll get to our, our two presenters uh, very shortly, but first I wanted to say uh, a quick word of welcome. Uh, talk a bit about the Recovery Project, frame up today's discussion a little bit, First things first, as always, as you've probably been seeing on a lot of the uh, Zoom chats you've been tuning into, uh, just a reminder to help stop the spread uh, wherever you're tuning in from, uh, to stay home, practice physical distancing, even as we talk about uh, the road ahead, as we start to ease out of social distancing, uh, for many of us, we're not there yet. Follow the expert guidance of public health officials. Uh, Do stay up to date with official information and and stop the spread of, of misinformation. Uh, Support local businesses and charities if you can, and and support frontline workers. So if you know a frontline worker in in your life, be supportive as I'm sure you are. Next, I want to talk a little bit about the Recovery Project. If you've tuned into other streams uh, that we've done, you've you've heard this before, but uh, the Recovery Project is a joint coalition um, that is intended to grow of three organizations, Canada 2020, my organization, uh, Global Progress, and in the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. There are our, our founding project partners and, and the Recovery Project was launched as a, an international coalition of think tanks and research institutes and, and policy-driven organizations working to start the conversation about post-pandemic recovery, even if that recovery feels a long way off. You can find our work at uh, recoveryproject.org. Um, if you've missed some of the sessions that we've done, Quite a bit there for you to take in uh, live stream, podcasting. Um, we're going to be starting putting some more original research uh, on there as well. But I encourage you to take a look at what we're doing. And if you're interested in getting involved, send us a note. So I've been looking forward to this stream for for quite a while, not just because of the topic, but because who we have speaking to it. We're very happy to be uh, joined today by two men that work at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Ian Mulherin is the executive director and chief economist at the, the center. And Sam Alvis uh, is an advisor on UK policy uh, at the center as well. Both Ian and Sam have been at the center of some really amazing thought pieces that I've seen circulated widely about the challenges ahead as we start to think about easing out of social distancing. And there's a a, a litany of issues that we have to deal with here, public health primarily, uh, governance, economic uh, technology and privacy issues. And so we're gonna get into some of those challenges. I will say a word of welcome to Ian and to Sam. Gentlemen, how are you?
1: Very good, thanks. Yeah.
0: I've talked enough. We've got quite a few people tuned in. I've already seen some questions rolling in, so clearly people are wanting to get to it. So, how about I hand things over uh, to you? I think you've got a deck that you can project and uh, you can drive uh, from here on out.
1: Thanks very much, Alex. It's great to talk to a new set of people and reach out to a new audience with some of this work that we've been doing. Because I think what we're all finding with this pandemic is that it's more important than ever that we have discussions that go uh, across uh, international boundaries and learn from each other about how different people are thinking about and approaching uh, this huge uh, policy challenge. So just to sort of introduce us a little bit more as the Tony Blair Institute, as the name suggests, um, the Institute is our our Executive Chairman, uh, uh, who heads it is uh, Tony Blair, who is the Prime Minister of the UK, as some of you will remember from 1997 to 2007. And the Institute has a, a staff of around 250 people. The bulk of those staff are actually engaged in government advisory work, um, mostly in Africa, in various, embedded within various governments across Africa. Uh, and so we do a huge amount of advisory work around the world. Um, but we also have a policy unit, uh, which covers particularly issues uh, around uh, extremism policy, uh, technology policy, and also broader UK uh, domestic uh, policy. And uh, Sam and I are both uh, from the policy side of the of the Institute. Uh, and since the COVID crisis hit, we've really repositioned the Institute to focus uh, very much on the COVID challenge, advising our governments on the ground, but also um, thinking in terms of the policy uh, debate about what we can contribute to uh, getting out of the the problem that we see in the the UK. I, I suppose just by way of introduction I mean obviously in all these discussions about the pandemic and what the policy response should be we all hear and read in the press daily discussions about uh, you know, how much testing is going on and what kind of clever apps might be deployed to tackle the crisis and whether lockdown measures might be eased at some point and who will be the first out and all these kind of things. And it's quite difficult to kind of really get your arms around this question and try and think about it in a more systematic way that would, uh, that would kind of lead to some insights, a bit of a blizzard of ideas. And so really the deck we're going to talk you through today was our attempt at the Institute to try to do that, to try and put some structures around uh, how we might think about the challenge, therefore sort of giving us a clearer route to understanding uh, what the elements of a successful or, or better approach uh, would be certainly than the approach we currently have in the UK, uh, which is uh, lacking in a number of in a number of areas. Uh, so that's really the, the purpose of the deck. We'll start by talking a little bit about the lessons we've locked down so far. So a, a temporary, just to put in one place some of the key bits of information that we kind of know that should inform our thinking. So the first thing to 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 note is that as many of us will have uh, read is that you know really. In most, in almost every country around the world, but particularly across Europe, um, it's been um, only really a complete lockdown of activity that has been sufficient to stop the acceleration of the virus. And so here in this chart, we've 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 plotted a, a, a selection of European countries and the. Um, estimates provided by imperial college london of the rate of acceleration of the virus and one is the critical level there you'll be familiar with this r number where when r is above one one person who's infected gives the virus to more than one other person and that's the definition of an epidemic it starts to accelerate and before you know it you've got Uh, uh, loads of people infected and and hundreds of thousands of people um, uh, uh, suffering from the virus and and many of them dying. So you really have to try and get that number down below one and kill off the epidemic. Uh, And then across the x-axis there, we've got the Blavatnik School at Oxford has developed a what it calls a stringency index, trying to measure how stringent are the lockdowns that are in place or the measures that have been taken. Uh, and we've each dot is a time period where a different set of policy lockdown measures were in place. And what you can see is that all all these European countries were sort of dabbling around doing some measures of constraint, uh, but that was um, uh, in the early days very. Uh, very much insufficient to uh, pull that R number down below one, and it's really only when you get to the bottom right of the chart there, when when most of these European countries entered full lockdown, uh, that Imperial estimated that uh, the e- epidemic was being closed down, with the number of cases was starting to uh, reduce, uh, and so that's our first um, our first the first and obvious conclusion. Now, obviously. Uh, the other part of the the story here is that we the economic consequences of this uh, lockdown are pretty huge. Here in the UK, the Fiscal Council, called the Office of Budget Responsibility, uh, has has made an estimate, and it feel it it thinks that uh, around uh, there's around a 35% reduction in economic activity at the moment. So if that continues to the end of the second quarter, you can see a 35% quarter-on-quarter quarter fall in GDP. Uh, Now, the government here has taken a lot of measures to maintain employment and keep people tied to their companies. Uh, But nevertheless, the OBR estimates that unemployment might rise uh, by a couple of million to about 10%. And the big unknown, really, is that, you know, we don't know how long the short-term lockdown will go on, but the even bigger question is what will be the permanent damage to the economy when we get back uh, to normal or when we start to come out of that. You know, In some areas, you've got finance and insurance. There's not a lot of a problem, but really there. Health, obviously, lots more activity going on there. Some sectors are you know, really almost shut down uh, construction um, and education and accommodation and food services, and obviously people in the leisure industry and that kind of thing those obvious sectors really uh, are going through a lot of pain. And the other thing uh, to note is that this pain is not very evenly shared. So here in the UK, the Institute for Fiscal Studies estimates that around a third of the employees in the lowest earning decile of the income distribution work in these sectors that have been most hard hit, uh, compared to around just 5% of the top three deciles. This carries all sorts of social justice implications, of course, but also political repercussions that could come from this uh, if we aren't able to end the lockdown quickly. And then, of course, besides the economic costs of the shutdown, we've got plenty of health costs as well and education costs. And some of these things are only really starting to become uh clear in recent days so past studies on education give us a sense that you know there is an effect on student performance tests uh, from taking time out of education and of course uh the people who are most likely to suffer from these educate the sort of loss of formal education are probably those whose parents have the least resources or uh, time or knowledge to contribute uh to the sort of homeschooling and those kind of things there's likely to be a very disparate effect on different kinds of students and in fact in the uk uh recently there's also we've we've also um uh, seen a study out just yesterday i think which showed that you know for um uh, pupils in uh, high paying private schools uh, there's a huge amount of effort going into replicating the classroom setup whereas of course uh uh, kids in state schools are, are getting much less of that so there's all sorts of disparities right across the income distribution that are, are causing problems and then of course the health impact are massive too from the number of people who are not using health facilities for fear of uh, catching covid or because they don't want to bother the health authorities at this time uh, and there's we're seeing lots of early indicators from uh, people not going to GPs in the volume that they previously would have done. We're seeing uh, cancer patients today. um, Figures out on that suggest uh, potentially many thousands of people not getting the treatment they need for cancer. So there could be a long-term effect on uh, mortality from uh, some of these uh, uh, effects of people not using health services. And there you see A&E visits as well, uh, a real problem. So and then just a couple of the points by way of context um, really about what we're kind of learning about the spread of the virus and this relatively simple analysis I thought was kind of uh, striking here. The first is that we would possibly expect that in the more deprived areas of the country you might see a more rapid rate spread, particularly if uh, lower income groups are more in need of having to go to work financial reasons then they're better off. But actually we haven't really possibly in the very early days of the outbreak we might have seen that. The local authorities across the UK will divide up into one of these four groups and you can kind of see that um, the rate of spread apart from the very early days has been pretty similar across all areas of deprivation so there doesn't seem to be too much of a story on that front which is at least means that while the economic impacts are highly Um, skewed towards the less well off. It doesn't at the moment seem that the health impacts of Covid itself are. Um, And then another bit of context uh, really is the um, relationship between the spread of the virus and uh, density of the population. I think many of us would have assumed that um, uh, that we might expect to see faster spread in dense urban areas uh, particularly in London um, but actually, that's not really what we we have seen in the UK, particularly since late March. It's actually been in more sparsely populated parts of the country uh, that uh, the rate of spread has really picked up and it has been persistently above uh, the, 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 the cities uh, in that. And I think that reflects the fact that what we've seen in the UK was that the outbreak very much started in London and it spread quickly in London at first. Um, but it didn't uh, really spread uh, any faster than anywhere else once it was ceded uh, to other parts of the country. Obviously, these high costs mean that there's this huge pressure to ease the measures that we've got. And we've heard, uh, you, you know, lots of people have written op-eds all, all over the world about the different ways you might do that. So we tried to think about some of the main, the main levers that you've got. Now schools are obviously important because they're really the linchpin of the economy in a lot of ways. Um, uh, you know only once you take home schooling and care responsibilities off working parents are a huge proportion of them going to be able to go back to work so it 's not much good opening different sectors of the economy if the workforce can 't actually work so that 's one of the reasons, quite apart from the educational points uh, made before that schools are a key kind of area for thinking about should we open these uh, schools first before anything else uh, and there are I, I think the first thing to note is we know that Children are far less likely to contract uh, or suffer from the corona- coronavirus, um, and of those that do, the, ca- the proportion that shows severe symptoms is uh, pretty small. So that's one saving grace of this virus: is that it does not appear to be nearly as severe for um, younger people. Um, and um, the uh, th- there are there is evidence that. Uh, school closures has some effect. It has an effect on reducing the R number. has some effect on reducing deaths, but these effects are pretty small, um, especially compared to lots of other measures uh, that we might take. And that partly relates to the fact that children don't seem to, to suffer uh, from it very much. And so, given this low risk uh, to children and the relatively small impact on R, it's uh, among the first thing that things that's being considered. And that's why in countries like Denmark, you see schools opening up. Uh, first uh, and a number of other countries are thinking about that too in Europe. Um, So some of the challenges obviously we need to address here there's things like um, how do you safeguard older workers who might be in in schools, Um, uh, can you even feasibly maintain social distancing particularly with younger, younger children uh, do you need to stagger re-entry into schools? That kind of thing. And then, of course, the question of, you know, will parents want to send uh, children to schools? Although, again, on that, the evidence from Denmark is quite positive, even though there was quite a lot of public pushback against the idea of opening schools. Uh, in the end, attendance appears to have been uh, around 90 percent, so, so most people have returned. Uh, so the second approach is to look at age segmentation um and we know that um again you know death rates for the under sixty-five, so people of working age are very much lower uh you know i think overall there's about a tw- um for the over 60s the risk of death after contracting the virus is about 20 times greater than for the under 60s uh so you know most of the working age uh, population is uh, is not at risk, and, and, the, and the youngest uh, are, are, the, are, the, are the sort of safest. So that's why uh, Warwick University researchers have proposed that maybe we could allow segment by age and allow workers who are in their 20s, 30s maybe to, to go back to work um, first. Um, I think there's some challenges around that that we have to think about, like can you feasibly maintain lockdown among other uh, um, different age brackets once you're letting younger age groups go back to work? Uh, you know, does the economy really work very well if you just allow 20 20 year olds uh, to go and run everything? Um, and then there's lots of questions about intergenerational uh, equity. You know, uh, people in their say 40s or 50s might have uh, dependents and all the rest of it. And, and I'm not sure how politically feasible it is to not allow them to go to work if you're allowing younger people. So there's some real political practical challenges around that. And then um, there's kind of sector segmentation. So taking different different sectors of the economy in terms of industries uh, and identifying which of them are more and less at risk and more unable to socially distance while working. Uh, And then there's types of segmentation such as um, using the size of the institution, the size of a shop, say, to be the defining characteristic. And in places like Austria, we're seeing them try to allow smaller shops to, to go back to uh, get back to business first, um, reflecting some of those segmentation um, uh, ideas. And I think, in also, we we're hearing in, in uh, uh, South Africa, there's a, a kind of a systematic attempt to try and go through the economy thinking about what the risks are attached to different um, types of work and different sectors of the economy. Um, and so that could enable you to get quite a large chunks of the economy back to work uh, in lower risk sectors uh, sooner rather than later. Now there's still some challenges here. Um, you know, we'd be pretty much flying blind because it's hard to say what the impact of a given sector opening is on on, on the reproduction rate. Um, And of course sectors, the economy doesn't work as simply as different sectors just operating, lots of them are part of complicated supply chains. So it's not much good that uh, your sector working if your suppliers are not working. Uh, there's not a lot you can, uh, you can do uh, do about that in that situation. And then, of course, monitoring of whatever uh, restrictions you might put in place is, is difficult uh, for sector segmentation. So there's some challenges. And then uh, finally, geographic segmentation is one that uh, we, we could consider. Um, now, I think, as we've said, there's not really much evidence at the moment in the UK, at least, that density is a driving uh, uh, cause of the spread but there is quite a big variation in the level of cases and the and the level of new cases uh, uh, in the latest data and the chart on the right gives you a sense of that in some areas it's you know four or five times uh, what it is in other areas so you might say well okay once we've got uh, cases down to a certain level we can uh ease off in in some of these uh, less affected areas. But but there are still problems about limiting movement. Can you feasibly do that between sectors? In the UK, we have overlapping authorities between the police, health and uh, local government, which make it very difficult. And of course, um, it's going to be hard to maintain a lockdown uh, in certain parts of the country if other parts are able to uh, go back to work, uh, go to the pub uh, and do whatever. So practical challenges, again, uh, with geographic segmentation. Those are all issues about how you lift the lockdown. How could you uh, take, gradually start taking measures uh, off? Um, but we're still left with the question about uh, the risk of acceler- the virus accelerating. And the latest evidence suggests that we really don't have very much headroom uh, before we hit that all-important R number of 1. Uh, So in the UK at the moment, the Imperial College estimates that the R is about uh, just under 0.7. And they have tried to break down the effect of different measures and the scale of impact it would have on the R number. Um, And what that that shows, and you can see this on the chart on the right, is our attempt to put this in one one place. What, What you can see there is that even just reopening schools, it doesn't have very much impact on the rate of spread but it may be enough to take the number back to one i.e., the point where it just starts to tip over into um, into an accelerating spread. Uh, uh, and almost any of these other measures, you put two of them on uh, the, and you start to ease lockdown more strongly. And you're very, very likely, almost certain, without other measures to be into an accelerating uh, spread. You know, we can think about sort of ease off or relaxing restrictions. And we can think about you know, perhaps uh, dialing up or down the spread. But really, we should think about, instead of thinking about it as a continuous um, set of choices, we should think it as a binary um, uh, set of outcomes. We can have, if we have the R below 1, the virus will uh, die off. If we have it above 1, it will very quickly accelerate and you end up with a a catastrophic situation. So you get this kind of very binary situation, really, where you can't afford to go above 1 without having some pretty bad effects. You know, we started off at number one in this chart where we were heading towards a very high number of deaths. We had no controls on the virus. We moved right down this curve, uh, this non-linear curve, all the way to point two, where we had harsh lockdown and hopefully we were saving lots of lives. And the, and the easing depression discussion is really one about can we progress towards some point along that curve? Uh, But the purpose of this curve is essentially to show that it's not easy to land on a point on this curve uh, that isn't um, pretty cataclysmic. Uh, So really, somehow we need to get off it. We need to break this trade off between suppression measures and deaths. And uh, so how can we do that? Well, there's really two sort of approaches. So the the basic problem is that lowering suppression measures is likely to accelerate the spread of the virus because we don't have much headroom on our R number and that in turn is likely to lead to more deaths. But we can act on both elements of that chain of causation. First of all, we can use containment measures, uh, like uh, the things that slow the spread of the virus for any given level of activity. Um, things like uh, wearing of masks, uh, having a, a good testing operation, a, trace, a tracing operation, these things can all stop the spread for any given amount of uh, activity uh, uh, that's going on. And then secondly, uh, we can act so that if we fail to stop the spread, if we do flip over into an accelerating uh, spread of the virus, we can still uh, break the link between the accelerating spread and more deaths by focusing on a shielding strategy where we try to keep Uh, The vulnerable, those whose infection fatality rate is very high, particularly the elderly, but some others as well, uh, try and keep them out of harm's way so that if we fail on the first uh, uh, strategy, uh, we don't end up with a high number of deaths. And so that twin track strategy is really uh, the, the thing we really need to focus on. And I think, Sam, are you going to take it from there on those two elements? Yeah,
2: so I'm going go a bit further into the containment and the shielding methods. The Institute, like uh, others, Paul Roma, uh, the Harvard Ethics Centre, have really pushed for mass testing as being the linchpin behind containment. Internationally, South Korea is probably the best example of this. And in, German, in Europe, we have Germany, thanks a well-developed bio industry sector, um, leading the way. There's a, a couple of issues that need to be acknowledged. First is the ability to ramp up capacity quickly. UK is really learning that this is an issue. Not only do you need supply of components, you need lab space, uh, you need the ability to administer tests. The um, UK is currently trying to recruit uh, an additional load of people to, to take these tests out to communities. Um, but there's there's a whole host of how you get to test to the actual people who need them. Singapore's recent second wave of infection shows the, the dangers of missing out key groups from tests. Uh, they failed to test large numbers of migrant workers and actually found out that their infection rate was far higher than they thought it was and uh, necessitating a return to lockdown. Without that containment for all members of the population, you really see that there's, a, there's big gaps in your capacity the one thing people forget is that contact tracing isn't isn't just an app it's not an easy fix so Singapore's trace together model is probably the the world leader at the moment it's open source others can copy get up and running fairly quickly but they're currently only reaching 20% of people uh, estimates are you need at least 60% to make this viable uh, to be able to have cut through in the population to be able to really track infections so if you look at the UK around 90 594% of the UK has smartphones uh that drops significantly off with age but then obviously you have risk increasing with age um so you're probably going to need close to 100% use for younger age groups particularly those that are economically active to, to make that viable alongside the UK is trying to currently recruit 15,000 people to to do manual contract tracing it's an incredibly arduous process if you look at the Harvard epic center plan they're talking to 300,000 people in the US to be able to do this Uh, massively expanding public health corps and and things like that. There's also the privacy dimension. So to take Singapore again, there's a very different political cultural setting compared to Europe and compared to the US and and Canada. There are concerns that citizens in in our countries may not be happy with, whether that's tracking location, um, the use of Bluetooth is is hopefully a more viable option, is less invasive, it can be uh, anonymised, and then but there's big questions on who stores the data um, and what happens to that afterwards. And also just how you get to that level of use. So there is a playoff between the civil liberty from, that we lose from being in lockdown and the civil liberty you have from an app, um, whether that app is mandated, um, like in South Korea, where you have to take your phone out with you um, and have it on you at all times, otherwise you can be fined or, or made to return home. But I think a lot of people are missing out the market as a key component here. So if businesses are saying, you can't come into our location, you can't sit at this restaurant, unless you have proven with the app that, um, that you can do that, yes, it's a restriction of civil liberties, but it's one that's come through the market rather than government, and it might allow a little bit more leeway um, for more liberal countries to, to implement apps like this, providing again, you reach that critical 60 plus percent number. So onto masks. The advice on masks is interesting, particularly in Europe. Um, many European countries were following advice related to masks used in influenza outbreaks, um, and what, it's one of the reasons they were slow to mandate them. But now you see Germany, Austria, France, Spain, um, all saying that masks are going to be mandatory, particularly in public spaces, confined spaces, um, and it's. The UK is yet to, to make a public decision on this, but it's hard to see them not coming behind. But again, problems. Uh, you have to be able to procure
1: enough masks. There's been
2: some notorious uh, issues with global supply chains, particularly things coming out of Turkey and China having defects. Um, And there's a range of quality in masks, so supplying surgical level masks to your frontline health workers is a problem in itself, let alone if you're then expanding that to all transport workers um, and manufacturers, and advising other people to use them. I, for one, don't fancy the role that teachers are going to have to play in trying to keep a mask on a four-year-old. It's a nightmare, and there's there's a behavioural aspect in this as well, in that people wearing masks think they're invincible. I'm a rugby player and I used to tell my, the kids that I coach if they put on one of the protective helmets, uh, it doesn't reduce their risk of concussion. Um, it just means that they're not going to get a graze. So you have to sort of manage this foolhardy aspect that you might get with widespread mask use. We know infections are worse for, for elderly people um, and younger people potentially could go out. But to manage that, you have to make sure that the younger people are not interacting in any way with the elderly people. Um, an ethicist was on the on UK radio the other day saying, okay, so if elderly people have four years of life expectancy left in, say, a care home or elsewhere, is it really ethical to keep them locked away from their friends, from their family for 18 months of that um, versus the risk that they might catch coronavirus? It, it's a really difficult ethical conundrum as well as a practical one. The group that I'm really interested in is the, these borderline cases that obviously a key for government policy. What do you do about economically active 65 year olds? There's a lot of them still in the workforce and do you keep them in or do you let them go back? And and who has that final decision? Um, It's a a really, really tricky one to manage, but shielding particularly through government advice to stay at home, um, I think we're gonna be seeing as a sort of a crucial aspect of this. I mean, we've been through many of these challenges. You can just see a map um, of some of the key considerations government are going to have to go through, um, particularly when putting these in combinations. So onto exit strategies around the world, I've touched on places like Singapore and South Korea. Um, What I'm really going to do here is compare the European and East Asian approaches, which I think is most useful. Um, One of the few things I've enjoyed with with this process is finding out the different terms that countries around the world are using for exit strategies. Uh, So it's deconfinement in France, it's de-escalation in Spain, uh, Germany is some horrid long compound noun as as we can expect. You can really characterize Europe's approach by um, a tightrope. Take your first steps and see what happens. Um, It's a very gradual reopening and predominantly relying on those lifting lockdown measures with actually not a great deal of containment. So yes, we've we've moved to a place where masks are much more encouraged and mandated, but we haven't seen the the mass rollout of testing, we haven't seen the mass rollout of tracing um, that we do, for example, in East Asia. We don't know this, part of the problem is getting capacity up and running, um, part of it is cultural. So East Asian countries obviously have experience with SARS and MERS, a lot of this infrastructure is already there. Um, I think that's a, that's a key thing that people tend to gloss over when they're looking at comparing comparing different places. The one thing that probably brings these two sectors together is actually the shielding. We've had some public communications on keeping elderly people at home, but it's not mandated. They're not treating different sectors of the population differently at the moment. Whether as we release lockdown that starts to change that will potentially get a bit more interesting. But you can really see here the differences particularly in this green category of containment between the East Asian countries far more developed in terms of their use of masks, mass testing and tracing, Uh, than Europe Uh, and part of that is a time aspect but also it is government decisions on on how they're treating the lockdown. You have to recognise that a lot of European countries really were just dealing with the crisis at a much greater scale and a much greater pace so the ability to make policy to to plan your mass testing and tracing to come out can't happen at the same scale of the economic damage that you were experiencing. One key point here that we're making to UK government is that the UK is behind the infection curve of a lot of European countries and obviously well behind the infection curve in East Asian countries. There is time both to plan your exit with a combination of containment measures, a combination of lockdown release, but importantly, get those key challenges out of the way. Can start building your capacity now, start hiring your mass traders now, start procuring masks now. Um, it does give you a bit more space being behind uh, to be able
1: to start tackling those. Yeah, thanks, in a sense, what we've just tried to do is is a canter through a relatively high level the different uh, levers that governments have to pull and to try and categorise them and give a, give a way of thinking about how you might combine them and what their role is in the strategy for exit. But that still begs the question: Well, what does a good exit plan uh, really look like? And uh, we've seen a huge you know this is a story that is changing daily across the world. Uh, as, a, as a, I'm sure you're aware so it's uh, interesting to think about what and this is really targeted at the UK debate mainly um, where we've had a, a lot of concern from the government that if they set out any kind of plan then there's a risk that that might encourage people to think the worst is over and they can all start uh, to go about their, their business. We've tried to make the case that, that that's very far from being the case and that Um, in fact government could give people more confidence in the process and help them to think about the future more if they were to uh, set out how they were thinking about what the the future might look like. So the key point is that government can't provide certainty on when the case numbers or the infection numbers will drop uh, sufficiently uh, to be able to lift lockdown measures of various sorts. Um, That could raise false hopes that would later have to be dashed but what it can do is start to help people manage that uncertainty uh, uh, by setting out how they're going to think about these things. That's really, um, it consists, we think, of sort of three kind of broad things they should do. The government has issued, in the UK at least, has issued five kind of rough metrics or f- five broad sort of tests for bef- what they need to see before they'll consider lifting. And But, but they're very vaguely specified, there are no hard numbers they've just said oh when uh, the number of infections is at a manageable level and everybody's thinking well what's a manageable level so we think they need to put some hard metrics on those things secondly we think they need to establish some different levels of suppression because it's not going to be the case that on the 15th of may or something everything is going to go back to normal so we have to be clear with people about what these different levels of suppression might mean and whether they'll vary by region or not and then finally we need them to clarify what uh, the measures will mean for different kinds of individuals, different kinds of workers, different kinds of businesses, and indeed for, for uh, older people if there's going to be a shielding strategy. So, what we try to do is put together a kind of very a broad plan. And the details of this aren't really the thing to focus on uh, because, you know, in a lot of ways, this is for the kind of as much for scientists and epidemiologists to complete and the uh, business specialists. As uh, for policy wonks. I would note also that in, in places like South Africa what we are seeing is a very good dialogue between government and different sectors of the economy where they're trying to work out you know what are the costs and benefits of allowing different sectors to open to varying degrees and that's the kind of interaction we need to see. Uh, but it gives you a sense of how these things come together so that people and businesses can start to get some confidence uh, that you know they can see a little bit into the future, they can see that infections are coming down and they can start to plan that maybe in two months they'll be able to get back to business. And that having that confidence or some kind of confidence in what's going to happen in the future, I think is absolutely critical uh, to the size of the economic shock right now. Because it's not just uh, not having any customers today, which is causing a lot of economic pain. It's not knowing whether you're going to have any customers tomorrow or when you might have them back. And so that's the thing that a plan could help address. Uh, and we really hope that something like this will be adopted by the UK government uh, soon. Uh, Ian, Sam, thank you
0: very, very much. Really fantastic insights. I'm going to start with a question of my own. So much of the strategies that you were talking about employing about you know, potentially sector segmentation, egg segmentation, age segmentation, come with, as you said, very real political consequences and very real political considerations. And as much as possible, we want to try to remove politics from this moment. But as we know, that's that's really, really hard to do. I'm wondering where can our policymakers and indeed our politicians who are accountable for these decisions, where can they draw strength and solidarity in the international community, from our multilateral institutions, where are ways that we can sort of work together as a global community of policymakers to help sort of build trust in the decisions that we make at a country level?
1: Well, that's a good question, Alex. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of this kind of goes back to the plan as well. I mean, so much of this can't be done by government fiat. They're not going to be able to just say, you know 20 year olds can go out and no one else can there needs to be a dialogue and and that they need to take people with them um because and and again with sort of shielding of of older people it it can't be policed it arguably shouldn't be policed it's going to have to be the result of people doing things willingly because they understand why the government is suggesting that and uh and that sort of thing And, and as an aside there's an interesting Question about how you uh, quite literally policing things, like uh, you know you, you're putting the police in different countries in very difficult positions by asking them to enforce grey areas of what is and isn't allowed, uh, and all this kind of stuff. So it, so much of this is about needs to be focused on government communication, having a national discussion, taking people with us, and I think you're right that there's a kind of international and multilateral discussion about you know what is the evidence that we're basing these things on and trying to uh you know learn from each other so that there's more credibility to whatever governments start to propose that their uh strategy should look like because i think if everyone's doing different things that will reduce citizens confidence uh, that their government's doing the right thing
2: yeah exactly and it's starting of to build on that i think the public communication is key so we know the governments are really struggling to think further than their national borders at the moment it's a a real challenge and i think if you're being open and transparent with your own population if you're publishing your data if you're publishing your metrics um that goes some of the ways to alleviating so that other countries can start to learn from that before you can engage in a formal dialogue when there's more space
0: question from scott bennett here who wanted to ask about what informs our thinking about exit strategies and what can we learn from previous pandemics and epidemics, I think that we recognize that we're kind of in, it feels like we're in uncharted waters here, that there's nothing quite like this, that comparing the situation that we're in now to, for instance, the the 2008 financial crisis, like those are those are two fundamentally different kinds of shutdowns and crises. I'm interested in how much you've borrowed from history and how much you've borrowed from uh, lessons learned from other pandemics and epidemics that goes into thinking for how do we apply this to where we are right now in 2020?
1: I guess in terms of the economic response, I think a lot more of that, and which we didn't really go into here, but I think a lot more of the economic response does, and the debate we're seeing borrows a lot more on what's happened in the past, um, and, the, and the financial crisis, as you say, a different set, a different scenario, but still some parallels there um i think on the health side um it's much less clear what how much there is to draw on i mean obviously some of the kind of actual epidemiological work and the uh, health work is uh, evidence that's drawn from things like the SARS outbreak and other such things but i think in terms of managing an outbreak on this scale in the western liberal democracy i think we're pretty much in uncharted territory so uh not a huge amount is the answer sam i don't know whether you have any
2: yeah I think that's right and it, the Spanish flu is really interesting because it's the one that people come back to, it's the, obviously the 17th just a couple of years ago um, so it's, it's reasonably fresh in people's minds and I think the, the most important thing of the Spanish flu that is guiding policy making at the moment is this idea of a second wave that people are absolutely terrified so the, spending, the second wave of the Spanish flu was, was far far worse than the first I mean a lot of that was due to people travelling uh, soldiers returning home around World War One, some pretty unique circumstances um, and some of the read really across because it's an influenza outbreak is not quite there for um for covid so i think yeah i agree with Ian in that we're just we in completely uncharted territory um, what we are trying to do at TVI is help governments think a bit further um than they're able to so give them a bit more space by by looking at some of the long-term impacts looking a bit further forward than the immediate crisis making that we know they're all focused on in the first instance
0: an interesting question here from Dennis Prouse. Simple question, but complicated, I think, in its answer. At what point do you see international travel reopening, and under what conditions? So I've been doing a bit of work on that, this today,
2: actually, in, in looking at measures around the world. And so you see in countries like New Zealand, um, yes, they're they're starting to release their economy, but. In no way does that relate to international travel um, so there, there's really strict quarantines uh, there's really strict border control measures most countries are still even relying on um, on limiting regional travel so so Spain won't let you move between regions without a, a really clear reason the same in France um, so I think we're a long we're a long way off fully fledged international travel again um, I think the priority for governments will be Domestic travel, um, supporting their domestic economies, but and then internationally, making sure supply chains uh, are up and running uh,
0: before they can turn to individuals being able to move around the world. A question here from Stefan Schatz, uh, and this is borrows from a Canadian example, but I'm, I'm interested in, in your experience. In Canada, we've got two extremes in terms of easing out of uh, lockdown, with Ontario and Quebec having completely opposite approaches. Uh, How do you balance conditional easing based on indicators with specific dates that allow families, public uh, organizations and businesses to plan ahead? So what do you do when, you know, regionally there's two vastly different approaches and there is a blending of information? Because these things don't obviously operate, these jurisdictions don't operate in a vacuum. I
1: suppose as a social scientist, my mind goes to like... uh wondering what we're going to learn from that in a few weeks' time and uh, find out who's got it right. And I guess in Europe we have a similar kind of uh, sort of situation with places like Sweden where they really haven't locked down nearly so hard. Uh, You know, they haven't done what quite as uh, significant constraints as, as other uh countries have and i think we're tr- we're all still trying to figure out you know how how um, how much the, is it going to work for them you know the effectiveness of those inter- different different interventions you know rather depends on how segmented uh, they can keep the the population with there's travel between them and that kind of thing uh but um i think we're sort of all just uh, hoping that different people's approaches will some something will yield a breakthrough and and, and we can uh, uh, apply that learning to 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 other places
2: yeah and, and in
1: europe you see
2: federal states moving at different paces um but it tends to be within a broad bracket so merkel um in germany is convening her federal ministers alongside um each of the state premiers to to make a decision and what germany is allowing to do is states to move slightly faster than others if they've got a low case rate if they've got a low infection rate um but really within a bracket so mask use uh at most has to be advised but it doesn't have to be mandatory for example but there is nowhere that you can't mention masks whatsoever. Uh, In Spain certain communities like the Canary Islands, the Balearics, um, they have a much much lower case rate uh, than other parts of Spain so they're being allowed to move slightly faster through the phases but uh, you, you just can't let these people get too far out ahead and also it entirely depends on what happens. So if you have the Balearics opening up quickly, and then actually their infection rate starts to spike, they're going to return to where the rest of Spain is. Um, so you have that flexibility to be able to learn potentially from other regions. Um, but governments are going to have to be responsive, both at the federal and the state level, to, to rein it in when necessary.
0: I might combine a couple of questions here. First of which is uh, from uh, Vincent uh, St-Pierre. There is a segment of the population certainly here in Canada, um, but I, we, I think we see abroad as well, who are actively issuing social distancing, um, protesting lockdowns and, and even participating in spreading of, of false information online. Vincent's question is, is, how do we get to them and have this kind of core dialogue with people who are actively resisting the, the public health measures that are in place right now?
1: This partly goes to the, the point that I made about the importance of a plan very good government communications to take people with it because there there is going to be this always going to be a a number of people who won't go along with it um uh, but then that's we need to erode that by by being open and having uh you know a good dialogue with people and i i don't know how it's been in canada but certainly in the uk it's been far from exemplary on that front um which i think exacerbates the problem but there is reason to be positive about it i mean you know ultimately we don't need 100 percent compliance with these measures in order to uh close down the spread of the virus um and i think what most countries are showing now is that even with a number of people who are flouting uh, the regulations uh, the rules uh, we're still able to to to, to, to clamp down on this thing uh so you know in a sense Um, as long as most people are following it we can do what we need to do Um, so in a sense it's not we should perhaps focus on the positives that the overwhelming majority of people are doing What we need to do to get this to work
0: I like that focusing on the positive seems uh, like good advice right now
1: I'm going to combine a couple questions here about
0: vulnerable populations um, homeless populations in Canada we have a, a very vulnerable uh, across the country indigenous populations what is the strategy and the approach um, for ensuring that we are adequately and properly supporting um, vulnerable populations as we as we ease out of uh out of lockdown
2: part of it is communications again um i know we keep coming back to it but singapore is really interesting in this front in that they have some really different language barriers, some um, different communities, and being able to reach people, particularly when they're relying on digital methods, I means you really have to throw the different the kitchen sink uh, at getting to populations where they're isolated, where they're vulnerable. Um, it means producing. I mean, Canada has more experience in this than the most in producing things in multiple languages, um, but being aware of all the different media you can use to reach people. Homeless people, uh, it's that's a really tricky one, um, and I don't know what the situation is like in Canada, but actually, Britain moved reasonably fast. Uh, to, particularly in cities like Manchester and London, to provide roofs over the head for, for vulnerable populations. A, a problem you have is that if you're then putting them all in the same place, um, you, it, it's not shielding, uh, it's, you end up exacerbating the problem. Um, what you need to do is look across other plans, uh, so say Harvard, um, and about where these people come in the priority, uh, list of what phase you're using them uh, to roll out. So whether that's waiting until much, much later, um, continuing business individual uh, welfare support for, for those vulnerable populations for as long as possible until until you're at a stage to, to start easing off.
0: One last question before we, we jump off here. You touched uh, on, on contact tracing, on app augmented contact tracing. Um, I think one of the shared concerns that's embedded in the opportunity that 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 uh obviously uh presents to us in terms of like lowering the infection rate and, and containing the spread is obviously worries about um that these measures actually being sticky and staying with us longer i'm curious about some of the, sort of the longer term uh privacy and um uh data implications uh when introducing uh, sort of an app-assisted, technology-assisted easing. I don't know, Sam, Ian, uh, sort of a jump ball for that one, but I think there's a few questions here in the uh, the uh, Q&A, just sort of around the longer tail of these privacy pieces.
2: Yeah so I think you see a lot of these these measures coming out now Um, particularly in Europe there's there's a lot of talk about the safeguards that go alongside Um, so some of the proposals is that the data is only kept for 28 days and then deleted so if if you're only infectious for 14 then realistically time limits on data is important. Um, It sort of builds to the wider democracy point about the rollover of powers um, and when these things are curtailed. Some of the proposals for data storage include holding them uh, in non-governmental organisations and then everything is wiped after six months, um, ensuring adequate scrutiny over things like that. Uh, and some of the technicalities, which my colleagues, uh, we've got a, a strong tech program in our organization, a better place to speak to um, on the differences between Bluetooth and anonymization when it comes to to tracking and, and GPS. Uh, but you're right, there is a risk that some of this stuff can stay around. We know from previous crises, uh, like after 2001, um, that indeed it's very hard to go back. Um, so I think you really have to start building that stuff in now and and apple and google's work together shows that people are thinking about that people are really trying to build the safeguards in early uh, the european union has a coordinated um
1: tracing app program uh, so hopefully we see that in in various countries i think there's also an interesting i mean people have probably concerns about the tech giants um but there there is also this kind of ability to anonymize uh using their kind of uh, uh their api to, to 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 make sure that the the data is not held by uh, centrally by governments and they can anon- uh, b- more credibly anonymize the data but that also comes with its own costs because uh, what it means is that um, governments won't be able to use Uh, some of that data to more effectively clamp down on, say, new outbreaks in certain parts of the country. Uh, So there's a real trade-off here uh, about whether you go with the lowest common denominator, low-energy produce, kind of tracking system that does the best for anonymity, but is the least effective for the virus, or whether we start to give up some of that privacy in the pursuit of getting a grip on this thing.
0: Sam, Ian, thank you so much for your presentation. We've had so many amazing compliments uh, about the work that you've done. I'm sure if, if people want to stay in touch with you, they can do that through the Tony Blair Institute's website. Um, you guys are active on your, on your social accounts, uh, sharing your work right now. So, uh, And we totally plan on, on signal boosting that through the recovery project. So thank you very much for your time. Um, Thank you everyone who has tuned in and who has uh, asked questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to every one of them, but uh, we keep track of those because they actually help inform future sessions that we do. Sam, Ian, once again, thank you.
2: Great, thanks for having
0: us.